Low Light, Episode Eight: The White Beast. The grasses and brambles and skeletal weeds populating the area around the track are damp-soaked and dip dejectedly. But this morning, the fog, which is responsible for the wetness, has had enough of skulking only in the wild spaces of the neighbourhood. And now looms over the small front gardens, down passageways, across the roads, and in amongst the street trees. It lurks menacingly. Eric's patch of wilderness is a solid block of fog. Looking down from the upper floors of Lightwood House, one is almost tempted to dive into it. The old man himself rubs his face as he pads to the window from his dishevelled bed. Peers down there and opens his mouth slightly, a look of delight brightening his sleep-drawn features. He blinks rapidly and searches for his glasses, taking up his mobile phone to read Gavin's latest message, urging him to keep in communication about the Mims. He tuts and shakes his head. He types back with big finger stabs on the cracked screen. No, you keep me informed. Just let me know what you see happening about the place and we'll decide what to do then. Stop panicking. He tuts again and finds his slippers, humping himself down his stairs to the kitchen, Deirdre in furry toe. He eyes his laminate pass for the school and screws his face up, looks to his cat companion for guidance. Tomorrow, dear. Tomorrow we'll see how we feel, eh? Don't have to decide yet. Now, come on, out of the way, my girl. Let the Eric see the tap, eh? Want some biscuits? As he sets the kettle to boil, there's a flutter and a muffled bang against the garden doors. That bloody crowlet! What does she want now? He shuffles to the kitchen door, opens it, and shouts into the garden, "Get away with you! It's too early. Get out onto the track, will you? No need hanging round here. Nothing for you here. Go on, or I'll send Deirdre out." The flutterings quieten, but then the fog tries its luck. Not you to go on, get back. He shuts the door, trying to get in here. What's next, eh? He stops to get his breath back. The kitchen sits in its shabbiness, mouldering. Eric looks at it, sees the dirt and the decay, sniffs, takes his tea, and goes back up the stairs. Deirdre follows behind. They return to Eric's bedroom, settle on the bed, switch the TV on, and Eric begins to scroll with the remote. An old man settled in his smelly bed in the unclean room, inert in his laziness. Gavin, emerging from Shirley's front door and frowning at his phone as he reads Eric's message, looks up and recoils from the overbearing presence of the fog. He shivers, pulls his scarf round, buries his phone and his hands in his coat pockets, steps forward, and away he slides almost graciously, and stops, wobbling at the gateway, perturbed. No one saw him. It's okay. 
he decides to keep his hands ready for any more impromptu ice choreography and crunches on his way. As he walks up Hawthorne, there's a commotion evident. There is screaming, actual screaming, coming from inside Lewis and Sarah's house, just up from Padma's. Gavin looks about, expecting other neighbours to emerge it's so loud, but no one does. He hears Lewis shout. It's muffled, but still conveys a deal of force. Then there is silence. Gavin is frozen to the spot for a second. And then Sarah screams so loudly, Gavin nearly topples over. He feels compelled to approach the house to offer his assistance. And as he gets to the gate, the front door flies open and Lewis is revealed, wielding what looks like a mop as the screaming runs up the stairs. Lewis leaves the front door and turns on his heel, legging it to the back of the house. Gavin peers, his neck stretching as far as he can make it, without stepping over Lewis's property line. There's a slam, and Lewis reappears, triumphant at the front door, wielding his domestic tool like a Roman spear. God of gods. He's about to shut the door when he sees Gavin. All right, Gav? Yep, yeah, hi, Lewis. Yeah, just off, he points up the street. You and Sarah, okay? Hmm? Yes, great, thanks. He looks at the mop. You know, just doing a bit of extreme mopping. <laughs> no, uh, he does a faux confidential whisper motion with his hand. Squirrel problems. Gavin raises his eyebrows. Really? Little bugger just tried to steal my boiled egg. Good job Judy was in her crate. Could have been bloody. Wow. Uh, has that happened before? I don't think I've heard of home invading squirrels before. Not in uh, uh, Not round here. Lewis? A tremulous voice floats from above. It's gone. I chased him out the back way. All clear. Gavin sees Sarah's feet descend the stairs. Why are you... Gavin was just passing, checking we were okay. Oh, hi, Gav. Yeah, did you hear my screams? I, it looked vicious. Did Lewis say a squirrel? I mean, what? Sarah has very large, very round and very blue eyes. Her mascara is always black and clumpy and serves to maximise her eye sparkle. Her hair is white blonde and she has almost translucent skin. She's large-boned and tall. Her flesh sags slightly on her impressive skeleton. She's like a duvet-covered snowy mountain. And she's nervy. Always has been. Her mother was. They both tremor very slightly as they move about and communicate. They both suffer with asthma, and you can hear it sometimes and see it in the heave of the chest. Sarah looks spot on her forty years. As she stands next to her husband, the visual contrast between the two is striking. He being athletically toned, dark-skinned, and with tight black curls on his head, against her pale softness. Compared to Sarah's jittery air, Lewis moves about as if he's powered by hydraulics, not a jagged edge in sight. It's as if Lewis is in sharp, glossy focus, while Sarah is slightly blurred. Crazy! 
says Gavin. Yes, madness. I was just putting the recycling out, wasn't I, Lewis? I mean, Lou usually does it last thing, but it was so cold last night and, well, I can't stand things piling up, can I, Lou? So I opened the door and whoosh, it came in. It didn't just come in, Lou. It whooshed. It was like super squirrel. Went straight for Judy's crate, if you can imagine. You'd think it'd be afraid of a dog, wouldn't you? Really? says Gav. But no fear. In he ran, leaping about with his tail and his little claws and... Oh, oh just remembering. Sorry. Sometimes I think I like them, the little furries. Sometimes they make me shiver. Oh, you know. I think Gav. Judy just sat there, mesmerised for a minute. Didn't know what was happening, did she, Lou? No. Uh, Sarah, then it was as if someone switched her back on and, well, I've never seen her bare her teeth like that. Oh, my. Sarah, Lewis asserts himself, I think Gavin needs to get to work. Oh, sorry, Gav. No, no problem. The couple stand in the doorway. Everyone has a smile fixed. In the foggy street, tree number 33 lets down frost from its little twigs into the air. It's very quiet. The bat box is silent. If you listen, of course, you'll hear the murmur of the radio news and slight rattle and hiss of a boiler heating a shower, the usual domestic background noise and the odd car passing on the faster street. The noise of an engine approaching rises above the atmosphere. It slows, and all three neighbours know the sound of the gear change as it turns up Hawthorne. Bright-coloured, confident, watchful. A police vehicle. Ruby Hussein observes the trio from the passenger seat as the car bumps over the rutted road surface, slowly passing Padma's house, and then disappearing up the street with a rattle. Across the road, Sally stands in her bay window, dressed in a toweling robe, belt tied tight, having just opened her curtains. She gazes after the car, then sees the neighbours across from her and retreats. Sarah muses. Wonder where they're off. Looking for charity, I expect. Charity, says Gavin. Really? Well, she would have been one of the last people to see Padma alive. Right, yeah, of course. Or L, I suppose they're still trying to locate her. Yeah, but they can't think. You know, I mean, they're just young girls. Hmm, says Lewis. Young women, says Sarah. What? Oh, oh yes, sorry, of course. We'd better let you get to work, Gav, Sarah says as she pulls Lewis back into the house. Yeah, yeah, lots to do. (laughs) Careful of those beasties. Gavin holds his hands up like comedy claws for some reason and is starting to gabble. Maybe it's the evil fog driving them crazy. And so he takes himself in hand and waves a strange backward wave and gives a shaken head chuckle to indicate amiability, as he walks on whilst berating himself internally. Sarah definitely doesn't like him. Now he's sure of it. He puts that out of his mind, though, and as he goes home, he pulls his phone out and jabs a message to Eric. Mimlog. 
Alert Level 1, 22 Hawthorne. The fog is flattered by Gavin's assessment of it. Its attention follows him, and it licks the houses, tastes the snow and ice as it goes. It shivers with pleasure as it glides over and under and around, closes its foggy curtain behind Gavin's sauntering figure as he progresses up the slight hill. As Gavin approaches his house, the police car's colours sail softly past him as it returns along Holly Road, Gavin's house being sighted as it is on the curve as one road merges into the other. The fog swirls. Ruby Hussein ends the call she's just made. She's had to leave a voicemail message. She doesn't like doing that. She ponders and then begins flicking through her notes. Her companion, in control of the steering wheel, is jabbering away merrily, and Ruby makes little movements of her head, her eyebrows, pulls her lips down, all in a practised dance to indicate that she is very much engaged and listening to everything the other police officer says. She's not really listening. Naughty. Oh, I think she might have heard me. Listening to something, then. There! See? She looked up. Told you there's something about this woman. She flicks forward and back, sees notes of names and streets and times of day. She lights her phone screen and checks in the notes in there and compares them. Stop, she says. Her companion stops the car immediately. Ruby is jerked forward and the car slides a little. She puts her hand on the dashboard to steady herself. Thanks, she grimaces slightly. I'm going to check the theatre for charity. The driver puts the indicator on to turn. It's okay. I think it's better if you check out her dad's house like we said. Actually, we just passed the turn. Sorry. It's in that cul-de-sac, just past Miss Vishwakarma's house. Although I suppose you could go on and round the long way. She meets an unimpressed look on her partner's face. Sorry, I just meant... Anyway, you do that, if that's okay, and I'll do the theatre... Otherwise, we'll never get hold of her. I should have noted it, but for some reason it's in my phone notes. <laughs> Sorry, must be more organised. <laughs> OK? A nod. Great. OK, I'll message you when I'm done. Or if you finish first. OK, right. See you in a bit. She fumbles out of the car, stumbles slightly, and walks over the road just past. She sees Gavin vaguely through the fog. Hello, Mr. Barron. Gavin takes fright and drops his keys. It's the policewoman who was at Eric's. He knew she saw him. Oh, God. Hello. Sorry, this fog. Hi, Officer Hussein. Officer, he says, almost saluting. How's the uh, investigation going? Oh, thanks for asking. Yes, methodically. Right, of course. Well, good luck. Do let us know if you come across anything that might be helpful, Mr. Barron. You never know what you might find in the undergrowth. She wanders on. Gavin is dumbstruck. The fog closes round Ruby as she heads off towards the theatre. It expands itself confidently. So many interesting little scenarios to choose from. But no, it's too curious about the atmosphere down on Hawthorne. 
so it drifts back, rolling through gaps between things. It glides over the ground down the hill, fertiles through tree branches, and skims the walls and windows of the houses, snuffling out trouble and strife. High up in Charity's building, the fog has less presence. The light is grey rather than white. Charity is tired, she didn't sleep well, and Shirley woke her with a call. She ends it, having accepted the lunch invitation. She checks to see who called her while she was on the other line, and her face falls. The police. At least she didn't answer the door. She grips her belly again, gathers herself. Yes, the decision she came to in the middle of the night, that she needs help, is definitely the right one. Okay, what's the plan? Theatre first. She'll stay out the back, sorting the furniture store, and won't answer the door. Then she can nip through the back gate in the ginnel and straight to Shirley's that way. She can ask Shirley what to do. Can she? Or not? Will Shirley help? Should she drag her into it? What if cat's round there? Oh, God. Who else? Lance? She grimaces. Tanya? Not the worst idea in some ways. But she'd expect something in return. No, not Tanya. And then she purses her lips. She frowns. Feels a twinge of self-pity. Annoyance? What about Sally? Hmm. She wouldn't have gone round to Padma's unless Sally had told her those things. And if Sally knows about... She should at least tell the police what she knows, shouldn't she? Why should Charity deal with this on her own? She's angry now and jabs a message to Sally. Let's see what she does. She sends it recklessly, gathers her things, switches the light off and as she opens the door sees Sally's reply. Charity nods. She knows what to do runs down the stairs, turns for the glass door and flings herself back into the shadows as she sees a police officer passing by, glancing in. That was close. Not yet. Please not yet. She waits and calms, calculates and counts on the fog as she slips out and into the belly of the white beast and travels through it, away from immediate danger. The fog doesn't mind another traveller. It enjoys the vague feeling of peril Charity brings with her as it loiters once again at the door of number 22. It peers through the big window at the front, strains to see the little fluffy black dog in its cage. Judy. Judy appears to be trembling and whining a bit. The fog sniffs and turns its attention haughtily to the livelier drama in the kitchen. It feels its way round the side, past the bins and the big camellia bush, to the kitchen window. I say drama. There's no speaking. There's activity. Sarah is making coffee very loudly. Things are banged down. Drawers are opened roughly. Cutlery rattles as they are pulled back. Lewis leans against the kitchen door watching, frowning. He sighs. 
Sarah bangs down the coffee caddy and spoon. There's a little fountain of coffee grains that leap out as if for joy and scatter themselves across the worktop and in the toaster. Shit, says Sarah. What are you standing there for? Can you check to see if that squirrel has left any mess? And Judy's whining. She needs to go out. You haven't answered me. Lewis, I'm going to be late for work and so are you. Can we do this later? You have the committee later. Tomorrow then, or the weekend. We have plenty of time to discuss anything you want to discuss. Or is it preferable that you disrupt my routine? Is that what you're trying to do? Because that's not okay, Lewis. We talked about this, remember. My time is just as valuable as yours. This is our relationship. Our future together. Yes, it is. And it has been our relationship falling apart for the past two years. Two years in which I have barely been able to secure ten minutes with you to talk or do bloody anything because you were too busy finding yourself with... She gestures with her arm, her hand still holding the coffee spoon. Okay, Sarah, please don't. She sighs. Sorry. I'm sorry, Lewis. I know you're sad. I'm sorry. Sad. Sad. Stop. No, not doing it now, Lewis. I'm sorry your friend died. I am. Yes, we need to talk. We will. But not now. They stare at each other. Sarah's jaw is trembling. The strange white light imbued by the fog outside is unsettling. The kettle screeches itself to its own ultimatum and then settles back down. The dog whines from the next room, quietly, insistently. Lewis and Sarah are each holding solidly onto the idea that they will not cry. They are fixed, clinging to their positions like limpets on a rocky foreshore, waiting for the next tide. Lewis blinks and pushes his big shoulders off the door jam and stretches his chest, avoiding Sarah's stare. This weekend, then. Saturday morning. Okay. Sarah's neck is corded with tension, but she looks relieved at this, raises her eyebrows, nods briefly. Don't forget, okay? Don't speak to me as if I'm a wayward teenager, Lewis. 9am. 9am, in the kitchen, notebook in hand. Shall I bring a copy of our marriage vows, or will you do that? How Lewis wants to run at her and scream in her face and bare his teeth and scream and scream and... The thought nearly brings him to tears and he wobbles and has to turn away so she can't see it in his eyes. Okay. Okay. Thank you. He muffles and proceeds automatically towards the front room and the dog crate. He stops inside the doorway and looks down at the small animal. He has to lower himself to see her. She's shivering at the back of the crate. Doesn't look like she wants to come out at all. He frowns and gets onto his knees, opens the latches. There's a growl. Hey, Jude, it's me, girl. Only me. It's okay. What's up, pup? The whining's back. The fog sneers at the window. Lewis looks up expecting to see something there. Can't even see the bushes in the front garden through the thick fog. It's cold in here, 
He reaches for the radiator and finds it chilled. Oh, Judy, are you cold, love? Come on, come and have a cuddle. Judy stays where she is, peeps from under her doggy eyebrows at that fog. What is it, eh? Nothing there, I don't think. You want me to check? Judy attempts to communicate that, yes, that would be a very useful thing for a large human to do in this situation. Check that there are no more incoming mims concealing themselves in that very vindictive-looking fog. It works, surprisingly. Could be a coincidence, and Lewis is just operating on his own, without understanding dog vibes. Or maybe he does have some kind of sixth sense. I suppose we might find that out at some point, but for now we have to take things at face value. That's just the way it is. And I won't have any dissent, okay? Right. So, Lewis is up on his very fine legs and now peering through the window. He really can't see much. Looking down, he sees a bit of gravel and the odd weed. Can't see anything above. He looks out. Tries that thing where you relax your focus slightly. Slackens his face. Remembers what Padma used to say. Feel the earth. Inhabit the air. Enjoy the ideas in your mind, whether or not they are yet organised. Catch at them, if you like. See what you get in your hands. He smiles, more inwardly than visibly, but his face is golden with that memory. His gaze has dropped slightly, and he sees Judy has crept to his feet. He picks her up and snuggles her fur. She gives a tail wag and licks his face. He looks back into the fog, not looking for anything beyond it this time, just interested in the fog itself. Ah, yes, well, you see, the fog does not expect this. It is slightly disconcerted. It feels half-dressed all of a sudden. Lewis stands and takes confidence in this new purpose. He delves with his eyes into the whiteness and begins to see the swirling of the clouds there. There are strands, different strands of colour, variations of white and grey and what? Sepia? Yellowness? Gold? And they are not only swirling, but vibrating, it seems. Judy looks too. Her ears prick. The vibrations begin to sing, and the sound creates more colours. The music fills their ears, and their bodies swell with feeling. Judy, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Did you do this, Miss Garland? Hmm? Judy's tail is wagging now. Big wags. Lewis is smiling a big smile. But then he hears something else. A little jiggering animal sound. There, again. And at the bottom left corner of the window, on the outside sill, creeps a large and very unhappy-looking squirrel. Lewis and Judy freeze. The squirrel gets on its hind legs and puts its arms up showing its undercarriage in some kind of bizarre, menacing warning. Lewis shakes his head, tuts and turns, having had enough of mad squirrels, all the while hearing Padma in his head, 
telling him that he really shouldn't turn away if he wants things in his life to really change. But his feet and his established pattern of behaviour carry him away and back into his groove. He wanders into the kitchen and picks up his coffee that despite the desperation existing between them, Sarah has made for him just as he likes it, just as she always does, while the squirrel chirrups faintly from the front window. The fog sighs in relief. Who'd have thought it? Menacing, and yet also slightly prudish fog. It pokes at the squirrel, who squeals and runs across the road. It's a bully too, it seems. The fog turns and follows it, dips under the police crime scene tape and down the side of Padma's house onto the track to have a sniff about. And while its focus is elsewhere, the street trees, looming above it and grimacing with the wetness it brings, quietly stretch their topmost branches in search of a little bit of a breeze that will move the bloody fog somewhere else, or better still, stir it up into nothingness and bring a hum of warmth to shift the snow too. They stretch and whisper to the sky, and yes, they find a breath, just a thin breath, but it's something, and oh, that fog's going to get the hump all right. Look, see, its attention is back and it is not pleased. It swirls angrily among the tree branches, but to no avail. A light seeps through below. It's Sally's front room. She sits alone in there, robe drawn up round her chin. No TV, no radio, just her, hands in pockets in her armchair, staring at the empty fire grate. Grey hair greasy, creased face drawn down, eyes hooded. It's not a happy sight. The room is grimy. Surprisingly, it looks like it was very recently not grimy. It looks cared for. The furniture and fabrics are good quality and in good repair. There are ornaments carefully placed. Everything has a layer of dust on it, though. There are some stains from spilled drinks on the table and the wooden floor. Magazines and papers are piled on the tables. Cushions are pushed down into the soft furniture and not plumped as they should be. The heating creates a stuffiness, and the central pendant light is glaring, despite the daylight. Is Sally grieving for Padma? Were they friends? Sally squeezes her eyes shut. She lets out a groan, almost a groan growl. You know, and sighs. She tightens her jaw, looks up, stares at the vase on the mantelpiece and breathes through her nose a few times. She twitches her head, then slams her hands on the arms of her chair and pushes herself up and out of it. She stops, standing, swaying a little, puts her hand to her aching head, shuffles to the kitchen in her slippers. She observes the red wine-stained glass, washes it in hot soapy water, dries it carefully, puts it away, takes a moment and then climbs the stairs and squeezes herself round the door of the bathroom. Wait, Mum, 
Can I just... A grey-clad young man trots down the stairs from the attic. Yes, love, course. Sally holds the door open for him and humps into the main bedroom at the front of the house. She looks out to see that the fog is clearing and that Sarah Hathaway is emerging from her front door, briefcase in hand. She slips a little bit on the top step, steadies herself, and then looks about her as if there is some devil hiding in wait for her. Sally watches on absently, and then remembers herself and steps back into the shadows. She knows she has a reputation for spying. She spies, sees Sarah get into her very smart car. She smiles. She likes Sarah to some extent, but really, it's more admiration. She got herself a lovely husband, and good on her. She didn't take his foreign name, but kept her own English one. Sally knows that Sarah earns much more than her husband. She's a lawyer with her own firm, family law, a high flyer. Mind you, Lewis is successful, also self-employed, graphic designer. Not one of the creative ones making strange posters and album covers, but day-to-day council business, that kind of thing. Public service announcements. God, it must be boring. But then what does she know about graphic design? Presumably the design bit is interesting. I'm off, Mum. See you tonight. Oh, okay, love. Yes, see you later. Careful in the snow. She looks back to see Sarah drive off and her own son skitter down the road, nearly coming a cropper over a protruding tree root. She draws in her breath sharply and then lets it out, shaking her head. That boy. My boy, she thinks, and smiles. What if it had been him, sitting on his own in that dark room, sucking his thumb on the deeply stained, worn-out yet overstuffed armchair, the chair almost swallowing him and his little legs only taking up half of the length of the seat, eyes big and round in the dim light, face sticky from sweets lit up by the incessant light from the blaring TV, hair a mess, snot running, cheeks tear-stained, a frown on his little face. What would she have done? Anything? Would she have done anything at all? She stands on the pink carpet with the curtains open, the white light cold on her face. Her robe is gaping, her arms having ceased holding it closed, cotton nightdress rumpled and on show. She sees her reflection in the wardrobe mirror. She doesn't shrink from herself, but holds her own gaze, hardens it, lifts her chin, bores into her reflection, thinks to herself, and then her face softens. It wasn't him. It wasn't him, was it, Sally? And what is past is past, and done is done. People do bad things. It wasn't your fault. At least you left. You got out. And that meant that Adam could be born and be looked after like a child should be looked after. That's what you did right. She pauses. So, stop thinking about it. It doesn't help. Guilt is all it is. 
A glance at a photograph next to her bed, then. It's old, but it's a lovely photograph. Professional. Taken in a studio. It's her when she was younger. Glamorous. And Tony. Anthony Lawton, who later married Tanya Jones. Misplaced guilt is all. Doesn't help anyone. Quite the opposite. She nods as if to agree with herself. And she whispers, You have to stop sticking your oar in. You have to stop asking about charity and just stop it. Now she's shaking her head. Okay, she doesn't agree with that bit. I can't. Can I? She looks herself in the glass eye again. Shakes her head again. Look at you. You look greyed out, like a computer application that isn't usable. You're not usable. You are of no use, Sally. Not now. Not anymore. Not if you don't do anything. If you don't do anything, you'll just keep drinking every night. Won't you? She steps forward roughly. Won't you? You're pathetic. Her phone beeps. She pulls it out of her pocket, calms herself, and looks at the screen. Charity. What? The police are looking for her. Oh, God. She did it. She drops the phone. She grabs her hair, handfuls of it, and shakes her head hard. Look at the mess now. Look. Look at the mess. Oh, God, Charity. Poor Padma. Oh, God. It's your fault. All of this. She's jabbing at herself in the mirror again. And then she hits the glass with the flat of her hand and cries with such self-pity. It's... Oh, I can't look. The fog looks. It bathes itself in the self-loathing of this worn-out woman. She tries to collect herself, braces herself against the mirror with her hands. Come on, stop it. It'll be okay. Things will sort themselves out. Charity can't have... She can't have, no. She's panicking, that's all, honestly. We just have to carry on. Keep on keeping on. Okay, she says to herself angrily, and then her mouth twists into a sneering smile. Yes, we open another bottle, don't we? We concentrate on the good stuff and then we see the neighbours and volunteer to take the minutes at the committee meetings. And everything will look better in the morning, nighty night. She looks at her feet, sees the phone, the message again. Charity's frightened. It's her fault. She stills and takes a breath in. No. Not this time. This is my fault. This has to be sorted out by me. 
Right. And you'd be forgiven for thinking a different woman walks purposefully downstairs 30 minutes later, clean, tidy and calm. She places her phone on the side table in the hall. She has replied to Charity. She'll be in all day if she wants to call round. In anticipation of guests, then, Sally opens the utility room door and takes a firm hold of the vacuum cleaner. The fog clings stubbornly to the track, all the way to the front step of Padma's house. It feels the flutter of the crime scene tape as the bothersome breeze gathers force. Yes, the breeze is strengthening now. The fog's antics have been brought to its notice. The fog finally slinks away, hiding around the side of the house, sensing the cold abandonment of the recently bereaved building. The windows seem to yawn with sadness. They gape and beseech the neighbourhood to give comfort, to light the fire, to find Padma and bring her home. The dust floats in confusion in the darkness inside. Glints of Padma's possessions gleam out, hoping for a kind eye and an appreciative word. The stairs creak as the breeze insinuates itself through the gaps under the skirting board and into the hall. On the landing, the patterns of the fabric hangings dance with the tickling breeze, as the house seems to welcome in the weather. Through the upstairs landing, the air glides towards the light from the front upstairs bay window. So pleased to be back as it pours into the bedroom and filters down and among the chests and boxes and cushions and footstools, the statues of creatures, real and imagined, that are stationed there, the piles of jewelled shoes and slippers and the hems of glittering dresses and skirts that almost touch the floor, hanging as they do on the outside of the wardrobe and from pictures and curtain rails. Here... There are flowers. Of course there are. These little delicacies don't die. They fade a little with the harsh light of winter and shrink smaller with the cold and the dark evenings. But every summer they grow strong again and show their faces to the sunlit window. There's a feeling of dissipating anger in the air. Must be from next door seeping through the wall that joins the two houses. The fringing on the light shade and the bedspread still hang heavy with misery, but even it begins to jigger about as this new breeze blows through, seeming to soak in the reality of Padma's absence. It stirs the tissues sitting crumpled on the dressing table, flutters the pages of the book beside Padma's bed, it tickles the surface of the room's interior and finds itself exploring the inside of the glass at the window. Outside, now, is a drizzle of rain spluttering down on Hawthorne Road, come to join forces with the wicked wind, and the fog is withering into a damp puff, and then it dies away completely. Now, the grey looms above, the rain begins to fall steadily and the snow melts.
thoughts into the gloom of a February morning in the neighbourhood of Lower Lee. Thank you for listening to Low Light. If you're enjoying the show, you can help me by liking each episode and giving a review of the show. You can just give a star rating, or if you have time, you can write something. You can follow me on the podcast website too. Your support is very much appreciated. Thank you. See you next time. You have been listening to Low Light, written, performed and produced by Melanie Crawley for Crawley Voice Studio. Find out more at crawleyvoicestudio.com.